We're going to read Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And Lord God, we thank you that we could be here today to worship. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom we had to come into this place. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have to open up our Bibles and and to listen and to read and and to hear what you have to say. We thank you, Lord, that as we are exposed to your word that you change us, Lord. And we thank you for this privilege. We pray, Lord, that this time would be pleasing in your sight and that what you want accomplished would come to pass. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week and next, we're going to be talking about what the church must be, what the church must be. It seems like everyone has some idea of what the church should be all about, what it takes to be a healthy church, what it needs to be and do, but it really depends on who you ask, what answer you're going to get. Some will tell you that the church is uh, Matthew 18, verse 20, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus said, there I am in their midst. Well, no, that's not the church. That's about church discipline. That's about God giving assurance from from his word that what what you do when someone strays has his blessing and what you do has his presence with you. So that's not the church. Others will tell you that the church is not necessary. Others will tell you that it's possible to be a follower of Jesus all by yourself. That's not true. You can't be a follower of Jesus and not be connected to his body in some way. The Nicene Creed stated that we believe in one holy, apostolic, little c, Catholic, meaning universal, church. Bit of a tough statement for many to get their their mind around. Calvin gave a good reminder. Calvin said that the invisible church is not the same as the visible church because in the visible church, both the wheat and the weeds are mixed in. You don't know who's who. As 2 Timothy 2 tells us, God knows those who are his, so you've got to be careful. It's important to remember that the true church is comprised of only those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's the true church, and and God does know who are his. The reformers said that the true church could be known by three things, three marks. They were the preaching of the word of God, the administration of the, the ordinances or the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. And where you found those three things in operation, you would find the true church. Well, for these next two weeks, I want to wade in on the discussion about what the church must be. What local congregations need to buy into, and what Grace Church needs to be about. Now, I think the church of Jesus Christ is is in the midst of an identity crisis. The church of Jesus Christ is struggling 
with an identity crisis. And I mean specifically with regard to her local congregations, local churches. Many churches seem to be trying to be many things. Uh, many, many churches seem to be trying really hard to be something or to do something based upon a mixture of biblical truth and various assumptions, cultural assumptions, and personal preferences. It's easy to misinterpret ap- actions, I know, and, and God sees the heart. But I, I know myself, and I know what I often struggle with on a daily basis. That desire to be seen, that desire to be known, uh, that desire that competes with the, with the desire to do what God has called us to do. That my will clashes with God's. I know we all struggle with this. But thank God on all fronts that he is sovereign and knows how to sift things out. But when I read Acts chapter 2, I get this picture of a group of people without personal agendas, this group of people that are simply people that are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and they are being used by God to make a difference in their generation. I see a simple picture. I get a picture of of a growing community of all ages interacting as they work towards a common goal, focused on magnifying Jesus Christ, first and foremost, the one who gave them life the one who gave them eternal life. God causing whatever growth comes about. Now I realize this beautiful picture lasted only as long as their single-minded devotion and their single-minded focus did. You need look no further than Acts chapter 5 to see that the young fledgling church interrupted by people with wrong motives. We We understand that the only perfect church is in heaven. Think about it. The book... In the book of Acts, chapter 2, you got the day of Pentecost. 3,000 brand new Christians. 3,000 baby Christians. 3,000 bundles of joy. 3,000 accidents waiting to happen. But in spite of our tendency to muddy the waters, God in his great mercy allows us to experience, as Acts chapter 4, verse 33 tells us, his great power and his abundant grace with his people often is truly an amazing blessing from God that he brings about. Now I do understand that this could be an eight week or longer series. So in two weeks at best it will be an overview, a flyby. I found myself thinking this week, what am I thinking? So if you're already thinking that, I've already been through that. We're not going to be doing an in-depth analysis on the church. It will be at best a flyby or an overview. But even so, it is a chance to step back. It is a chance to evaluate who we are as a church against what God's word reveals. It is a chance to, to let the spotlight of the spirit examine our hearts, examine our common life together, and examine to us and show us where we are at. But where we are strong, my prayer is that we would be humble and praise God. Where we are weak, my prayer is that where we are deficient or weak, that we would not despair, but we would trust God to do a work in our hearts. And when we're not clear about where we land, may we be open to change as the Spirit of God leads us. That's my prayer for us in these next two weeks. Let me give you the main point. With regard to what the church must be, the main idea, the central focus is this. The church must be a holy, united, loving community committed to God and what matters to Him. 
But the church must be a holy, united, loving community committed to God and what matters to him. Things near to the heart of God. Mark Dever in his book, The Message of the New Testament, makes the the holy, united, and loving point from 1 Corinthians. But it's supported elsewhere in Scripture, here in Acts as well. But look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That the church must be holy. I want to look at the idea of being holy, united, and loving uh, for a few moments here. That the church is to be holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul is greeting the church. And, and by the way, the Corinthian church was a church that had issues. They had a, a discipline problem going on. An ongoing problem that they had to face. This was not your perfect church. And what did, what did Paul say to them? He said in verse 2, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Jesus. He greets them as those who are being made holy in Christ. In verse 8 he says that Christ will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless before him. Being holy means to be different and and being holy as a church means that we will look foolish to the world. We'll look foolish to the world because those who are not in league with Jesus don't buy the things of God. They don't accept the things of God. 1 Corinthians one twenty one tells us that God was pleased through the foolishness of a message preached to save those who would believe. The natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, does not accept God's truth. Acts chapter 2, it says that they had favor, verse 47, favor with all the people. They were loving them for a while. Uh, Then some people got agitated at what God's new community was doing to overturn, to, up, to turn upside down the culture. And so they got persecuted because of it. They started to persecute followers of Christ because people got agitated. But for a while they had favor. But we are strange to the world. The church is strange to the world, but, but special to God. Special to God. Colossians 3 and verse 12. It says, those who have been chosen of God. You sit there today and you say, well, I'm not special. I don't have a place here. I don't fit in. I don't know anyone. Let me tell you, according to Colossians 3.12, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have been chosen by God, you are holy, and you are beloved. You have a place in the body. And my prayer is that you would find a place here in this body. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 says, you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession and being holy means we are pure we don't often feel pure but being holy means we are pure often a painful process again look no further than acts chapter 5 look no further than first corinthians chapter 5 there was a tough situation going through church discipline so that the church would be pure so that the church would be holy before god first peter 1:15 like the holy one who called you Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. The church is to be holy because God is holy. The church must also be united. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5 tells us that we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, one faith in Jesus Christ, one baptism in Jesus Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are to be a united community of believers. Ephesians 4.16 gives a perfect picture of the body 
working together in unity. The whole body fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. Each part has its place. It says that it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Chuck Colson talked about unity and disunity in his book, The Body. He said this, he said, disunity in the church would be understandable if Christianity were simply a relationship. Jesus and me. Disunity would be understandable if it were nothing more than a set of creeds and confessions. But he says Christianity is centered on the one who professes to be ultimate reality. The personal God who gives us life. The personal God who gives us meaning and who calls us to be his body at work in the world. Now, Colson says this, if we really understand that, disunity becomes impossible. Those who will not live together in unity with their brothers and sisters in Christ do not understand what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, which is to be unified. The church is to be unified because God is unified. God is one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity. The church must be unified. The church must also be loving. In love with Jesus first and foremost. And then loving one another. And then loving all people. A couple weeks ago I made a comment about the church being, should be the most accepting place around. And someone laughed. Because they go to this church and they don't feel accepted. Not many people talk to them. Someone laughed out loud. The church ought to be the most loving place on the block. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8 says, Knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. This is not an info dump. This is, for, this is for, uh, to take into our minds and our hearts and to live out in our lives. When we come to the word of God, if we're just going for info, we're there for the wrong reason. Knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. Love builds up. We've got to be loving. And the church is to love because God is love. First. 1 John chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. The church is to show the character of God. The church is to show the character of God amongst its members, but also out in the world. The church is to be united. The church is to be holy. The church is to be loving. But, but if what the church is to be this, this holy, united, loving community that is committed to God and what, what matters to Him, what does it look like? How does it work in operation? You know, here at Grace, we have our mission, vision, and values very clearly stated. You can see them very clearly written in the bulletin every week. We don't hide it. It's, it's out there. Uh, it's what we're all about based upon the Word of God and, upon, and the heart of our leadership team. And we are united in our aims and in our goals. Um, and as a church, you know, you've got to land somewhere. I like to say that if it's in writing and not in practice, it's no good. A lot of churches have really good mission statements, but what does it look like played out in life? What's the body look like? How does the body interact with one another? How do they deal with their differences? How do they deal with it when something goes haywire between two people? Do they get it together or do they trash the word of God? For their own desires. What happens? Well, what does it look like? As a church, you've got to land somewhere, but can we get more specific? 
Does the word of God get more specific? I believe it does. That's why I want us to look at Acts chapter 2. It's not the only place where the church is addressed. It's not the only place where the church is described, but it's a good starting point. Jesus had, had lived and died and risen and ascended. On the day of Pentecost, the people of God experienced the movement of God to join those who believed in Jesus Christ into a community whose aim was to worship God and to love one another and to reach the world for Christ, to be used by God in his work of seeking and saving those who are lost. Look at verse 42. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. You don't have to go far to see what they were doing. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, which means partnership, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Verse 43, they were feeling a sense of awe. Why? Because God was at work amongst them. They were feeling a sense of awe and they were witnessing signs and wonders. God was doing something among them. He was doing amazing things. They were not doing it. God was doing it through them. Verse 44, they had all things in common. We saw this, this shift take place in their relationships and they engaged in radical sharing with one another. Radical sharing. They ate their meals in one another's homes. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. Why did all these things happen? Why did they do these things? We know this. We know that they were made Christians by Jesus. And they had become convinced of the importance of God's truth. And that truth then informed and inspired their common life together. That's what we know. But, but what are the things in this passage that, that mark the church that is committed to God and, and to what matters to Him? But I want to show you uh, this week and next how you can discern between a healthy church and an unhealthy one. Not just in our midst, but you know, we have our young people going away to college, and they're going to be looking for a church. How do they know that the church that they're going to land in is solid? How do they know it's a healthy church or not? How do they know that it's one that's committed to the things that, that God is committed to? How do they know that they're going to a church that is built on a solid foundation uh, as opposed to one that isn't? As I look at Acts chapter 2 and specifically verses 42 to 47, but it's immediate context as well, before and after, I can't help but notice things that Christ's church must be about. Christ's church in its local, visible manifestations must be committed to and must be united around. I call them eight marks of a God-pleasing church. I'm going to give these eight marks of a God-pleasing church today and next week. Four today and the next four next week. So you've got to come back next week. Okay, deal? All right, I'm only going to give you four. I'm going to keep you waiting on the last four. So here we go. First and foremost, first and foremost, the church must be committed to God-centered worship. God-centered worship. As, as we heard from Ryan and Sarah today about the church in Italy, their church is, is, is supportive. It's a worshiping body of, of, of believers that be biblically equipped to do what the body does. That's what we want to be here. But it starts with God-centered worship. Look at verse 46. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were going to the temple where worship took place, where public prayer took place. They were going to the temple areas every day for public worship and for public witness. First Peter 2 and verse 9, 
where it speaks of the body of Christ being a chosen and royal and holy and, and God's possession, there is a reason for it. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To proclaim God's excellencies, to praise him, to worship him. I've been thinking a lot about worship recently. I agree with John Piper who says that worship is a feast of the glorious perfections of God in Christ. That's a great statement. There's a lot of chewy, chewy goodness in that statement. Uh, worship is a feast of the glorious perfections of God in Christ. I want to be worshiping God with all my life because of how great He is, because of how perfect He is, because of how He has revealed Himself in Christ. When I obey God's instructions in Psalm 37 and verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. When I do that, I worship. When I don't, I slide into the seat reserved for God alone and I become the focal point. I've been thinking a lot about our corporate worship services as well. How much of it is biblically based? How much of it is culturally shaped? How much of it is preference driven? Let me say this about worship. Worship is for God's glory and his people's good. It is first and foremost for God's glory, but it is also for for his people's good. And most people will instinctively agree with that statement. They will agree with this broad statement. But how many of us stop to evaluate whether our worship is man-centered or God-centered? In man-centered worship, we are focused on the way people do things. On man-centered worship, we are concerned with our comfort. We're thinking about ourselves and how it all relates to me. Whether we like the music. Whether the preacher says things we agree with. Whether the volume of the song selection is, is just right. Whether it suits us. Some of you may be engaged in, in man-centered worship right now. You might have been engaged in it earlier, so worried about what it sounded like or what it looked like or what someone did that you're not worshiping God with your heart. I've told people before that, you know what, if someone was up here banging on a tin can, I should be able to worship or playing the accordion or whatever beautiful instrument that that God has, has allowed to be made. We should be able to worship God wherever we are. God centered worship, we are most concerned with God. When God-centered worship, we are most concerned with His pleasure. We are most concerned with offering ourselves to Him. We're not picking on what people are doing. We're thinking, God, I want to give you my life. God, I want to give you my worship. And we as a body, we do it together. We say, we want to lift our voices to praise the God who gave us life and to praise the God who, who provided eternal life. That's what our aim should be. In God-centered worship, we're most concerned with where our heart is, whether we are worshiping with all we have, unconcerned about what people think and unconcerned about what people, what people think we're doing too or what we think about what other people think or what we think about what other people do. Now, I'm a long way from figuring this all out, but I am convinced of a couple things regarding worship. I am convinced that worship needs to be God-centered. Worship needs to be God-centered. The God of the Bible is to be the focus. And worshiping God, by the way, is an end in and of itself. Not a means to getting something else. 
that worship of God is an end in and all of itself. Not a means to get something else. But though we will benefit when we worship God. God's people benefit from worship in terms of growth as they, as they respond to his greatness. The gospel changes us from the inside out as we experience intimacy and joy in God. And we desire to worship him more. When we exalt him, we get a glimpse of his awesome glory. We are transformed. And by the way, we should come to worship. You should come to worship to give and receive. To give and receive. Receive from God. You should come hungry for him. The psalmist, what does he say in Psalm 42? As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul longs after you, O God. You should come hungry for God. You should also come ready, though, to offer yourself to him. Our interactions with the written word of God lead us to worship, both individually and corporately. And in God-honoring, Christ-centered worship gatherings that are built solidly on the truth of God's word, God's people are strengthened to do the will of God out there. We come in here to worship God and to be equipped to go out. So we are equipped to do the will of God. And worship is not to be based on our feelings. Worship is not to be based on our preferences or our ideas, but on what God has revealed in his word. And that takes some hard work to figure out at times. But as a body, we must be united in that. That's why I'm so committed to engaging in the second mark of a God-pleasing church. Christ-centered preaching and teaching. Christ-centered preaching and teaching. Look at verse 42. You don't have to go long in this passage to find out what they were all about, first and foremost. Verse 42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God being taught, to the word of God being preached. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We engage in, in then preaching that is used by God to change lives. That we engage in, in expositional preaching, primarily, that is used by God to change lives. Contrary to public opinion, Jesus didn't just teach stories all the time. Jesus' main way of teaching was expositionally. Well, he used stories, but that wasn't the bulk of his teaching. That wasn't the main focus of it. Jerry Vines and Jim Shaddix said that expository preaching is this, the process of laying open a biblical text in such a way that its original meaning is brought to bear on the lives of contemporary listeners. The process of laying open a biblical text in such a way that its original meaning is brought to bear on the lives of contemporary listeners. Haddon Robinson put it this way, at its best, expository preaching is the presentation of a biblical truth derived from and transmitted through a historical, grammatical, spirit-guided study of a passage in its context, which the Holy Spirit applies first to the life of the preacher and then through him to his congregation. Ram S. Richard says that the goal of preaching is to inform minds, instruct hearts, and influence behavior towards godly action. To inform minds, instruct hearts, and influence behavior towards godliness. Again, this is not just information collecting. God wants to to transform our lives as we've been exposed to the word of God. And that my aim being up here is not to give you merely information, though you must give something, but it's so that your, your mind would be informed, your heart would be instructed, and then your life would be changed as you go forth. You say, well, they're always like that. 
They always do this. They never do that. Well, you know what? God can change a heart. Has he changed yours? Has he changed someone's heart in your family? You know God has changed, is changing us. And he's, he's conforming his people to the image of his son. That's the process that God is involved in. I like the way that, uh, that Paul put it so simply. The Bible says it so simply. Preach the word. Preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. The God's word is to have a primary place among his people. And by the way, you're not going to always hear the best sermons. You may, even know, you may go, well, I don't even like the way you preach. Well, guess what? My task is to be faithful to the text, not to entertain you. My task is to be faithful to the word of God, to rightly divide the word of truth. That you come each week to hear God's word, not Mike's word. There's some preaching out there that is, that is really bad. And you may say, yeah, I've heard some of it. Please, don't tell me you hear it every week, all right? But there's also some preaching out there that distorts the truth of God, that deceives the people of God. Tr- preaching that it sounds slick, that is enticing, and that is wrong, that is leading God's people down the wrong path. So our task is simple. God's word is to have a primary place among his people. I love the primary place that the word gives the word amongst the people of God. 1 Timothy 4 and 13. Here's what Paul said to Timothy. Give attention. Until I come, give attention. And this gets lost in so many local assemblies. Give attention to the public reading of the scripture. That's one reason why I'm so committed to have a Bible reading here in the service. Do you realize the Bible reading in the service is the only perfect part of this worship service every week? Because the word of God is perfect. The word of God is pure. Paul says, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Give attention to that. And so we must first read, then explain, and then apply the text. And allow the Holy Spirit to apply it among us as well. Look with me at Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. Go earlier in this passage. We see something. It's on the day of Pentecost, and it's, it's, it's a situation where God moves amongst his people, joining them into a Holy Spirit-indwelt body who's been saved by grace through faith in Christ. But they start, they start speaking of the mighty deeds of God. You see that in, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 11. They speak of the mighty deeds of God, and, and, and people start wondering. They said, What is going on? What is happening here? Some began to mock though and they said, they're drunk. And then we see what Peter did. Verse 14, Peter took his stand with the 11 and he raised his voice and he declared to them. He got up in front of them and he spoke. He said, by the way, they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning, come on. They're not drunk. God has done this. Steve Lawson, in in a sermon entitled The Passion and Power of Apostolic Preaching, says that preaching, first and foremost, must be bold and authoritative. And that is what Peter did. Peter, it says, took his stand. The Greek word histemi means that he arose to take a firm stand and he established himself in front of them. He led in front of them. He was bold. He was authoritative. He had a posture that was not passive. He was passionate. He was, he was proclamational, 
And he, he, he plainly spoke forth truth to them. It was serious, but it wasn't a joke. It was serious business that he was sharing with them. It was life and death stuff. Bold and authoritative, and he took his stand and he declared and spoke plainly and seriously. Lawson also says, though, it needs to be text-driven. Driven by the word of God. Look at verse 16. Peter begins to speak. And he says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. He's now going to explain a portion of scripture. He takes him to the Old Testament, to Joel, and he says that in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. In those days, I will pour forth of my spirit, says the Lord. They will prophesy. He was, he was driving the text. Many churches, they, they forget all about the Bible. But here, it's focused on the word of God. But it also must be Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Peter just didn't give a nice, a nice sermon on, on the prophet Joel and what he said. Oh, no. He took it right to Jesus. Verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to me. Understand this, that Jesus from Nazareth... A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. You need to know this. The man that was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, the man that you nailed to the cross, this Jesus, well, God has raised him up again. And God, God has, has made him both Lord and Christ, Messiah and Lord. He brings it home to Jesus. So it was bold and authoritative, it was text-driven, it was Christ-centered, but it was also heart-piercing. That's what Lawson brings out, his last point. In verse 37, they had heard this. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified has become Lord in Christ. In verse 7, they, they heard this and they were, they were pierced to the heart. They were convicted in their souls. Their consciences were wounded. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? What shall we do? They were convicted by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus because you've been forgiven of your sins after you've repented. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's heart-piercing. Preaching that is biblical and and Christ-centered results in growth. It results in in true, holy living. It leads believers to share their faith in Christ and give glory to God. Preaching is primarily done when the church gathers to worship. Teaching, though, Bible teaching, must take place in every ministry of the church. In every gathering, from the youngest baby to the oldest adult, they should be exposed to the Word of God. Our only, the only, Rule for faith and practice. That leads us to our third mark of a God-pleasing church. What Christ's church must be committed to. And it is Bible-centered beliefs. Bible-centered beliefs. The result of solid teaching and diligent study. Look at verse 42 again. So they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They continually devoted themselves to fellowship. They continually devoted themselves to to the breaking of bread, literally the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper, and they continually devoted themselves to the prayers, 
praying to God, coming to God, dependent upon Him. Well, the question is, where did they learn all that? How did they know to do those things? Why did they do those things? Well, the answer is they learned them from Jesus. They had been with Jesus. They had lived with Him. They had walked with Him. They had talked with Him. They had listened to Him. They had been challenged by Him. His teaching about Himself. His teaching about His person and His work. Their basic responsibility as His followers. His teaching on the Lord's Supper. His own baptism that they, that they would have witnessed. His instructions to make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them and teaching them. His prayer with them. His prayer for them. They had heard all this. They had seen all this. They had experienced all of this. The doctrine matters. What you believe matters. People will say, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's only what you practice. Your practice comes out of your beliefs. It totally matters what you believe. It completely matters what you believe. Now, everything you believe doesn't always come out in your practice. Sure. But what comes out in your practice is what you truly believe. So where did they learn this? They learned it from Jesus. And those who think biblically, by the way, live biblically. You think biblically, you live biblically. What you believe works itself out in your life, works itself out in the church. And therefore, we must agree on core doctrine and agree to disagree on the peripheral teachings. Agree to disagree where necessary. We've got to realize that doctrines have different weight. Not every doctrine you would die for, but there are some you would. There are some we would if it got to that in America. There are doctrines we must agree on, like the deity of Christ, like the person of Jesus Christ, like the authority of Scripture, like the substitutionary atonement, like, like the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and the return of Christ. Those are the things we die for. But there are others. There are other teachings where sincere and intelligent Christians differ Mark that, sincere and intelligent Christians differ. What kind of things? Well, things like the order of events pertaining to the Lord's return. Things like the degree of separation we must have from worldly practices. Things that believers have wrestled with for centuries and haven't come to one definitive conclusion on. Those are the kind of things we must hold with degrees of charity. We must always be learning. We must always be evaluating things by the word of God. By the way, the things that we agree to disagree on should be relatively few. There should not be a big list of things that we agree to disagree on or else we have no unity. We have a doctrinal statement here at Grace, a a statement of faith. We don't hide it. there's, There's copies in the office. It's on our website. We want you to know it. Every person that becomes a a member of Grace Church of Orange reads the doctrinal statement, the, the statement of faith. They go through it. And if there's points of departure, we talk with them about it. And some of the things, they're more peripheral. They don't really matter that much when it comes to the life of the body and what we must believe. But there are other things that we would all stand on a hill and die for. We've got a statement of of faith. By the way, if you've never looked at it, you need to look at it. If you're going to be at grace, you need to know where we stand. It's going to come out in our teaching. Myself or any of the elders or pastors that are going to teach or anyone that's teaching are in line with that statement. It's important. By the way, um, some disagreements that Christians have 
with biblical teaching come from a lack of diligent study. You go, oh, I heard that when I was a kid. I've always been taught that. Well, have you ever looked and see if it was in the Bible? That'd be important. That would be helpful. Check and see. Be a Berean. Check and see if the things I say are accurate with the word of God. Haddon Robinson said that God overlooks ignorance. Praise God. God overlooks ignorance, but ignorance can do great damage. Ignorance can mess things up. Timothy Peck said that the Bible is like a road map. It exposes us to our wrong beliefs about life. By the way, if you disagree with a a majority of your church's teaching, it probably is one of two issues. Both necessitate some sort of movement on your part. Number one, if you are biblically solid but your church isn't, you're in the wrong church. You may need to do some reforming in that church or you may need to do some moving with your feet. Number two, maybe you're not in a sound place doctrinally. Maybe you are not solid doctrinally in the faith and have some moving to do in, the, in terms of your beliefs. I like to say that we all come in here kind of with a proverbial bucket of rocks. And in that bucket of rocks are all of our beliefs. And there are some big rocks in there that should never move. But then there are some other rocks uh, conspicuously placed that, that can move that sincere and intelligent Christians over the years have differed on. And the question comes up that when we realize that one of our rocks doesn't line up with, with the truth, do we take it out? Or do, we in, or do we insist upon keeping it? Do we take it out and grow and learn? Paul told Titus to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Titus 2 and verse 1. We are to know God as he has revealed himself in the word. Now, I want to say this, too. There are more areas to agree on than there are to disagree on. From the start, believers in Christ shared core beliefs, which were more important than where they differed. These included things like this. Belief in the authority of God's infallible, inerrant word. Non-negotiable. Belief in, in God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Non-negotiable. The gospel truth that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He suffered. He died. He substituted himself in the place of sinful man. He rose again. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he will come again. Non-negotiable. The Holy Spirit brings benefits of Christ's saving work to all who believe. The believers are to unite with a local church. Sealing their entrance into the body of Christ in baptism once. And participation in the Lord's Supper over and over again. They submit to the authority of the leadership of that church, living a holy life, sharing the gospel of Christ. And at the end of time, God will judge the world and receive his own to himself. These are the things that Christians over the, over the years have united upon, united around. You know, many churches have a good statement of faith. But what, what I want to know is, can you see it in practice? Can you see it in practice? What I want to know is, do we truly lead people to love Jesus? Do we truly love people, lead people to love Jesus and love his word? Do, do we live holy lives? Do we stand for truth? The last mark I want to look at today, and by the way, I'm going to look at the next four next week. I've already told you that. By the way, if you think I left something out, it'll probably be covered next week. If not... Talk to me, call me, text me, email me, talk to me in person. 
Let me know. You got to land somewhere. And I landed with these eight. But the last one we're going to look at today is, the last mark, uh, the fourth one, is God-dependent prayer. God-dependent prayer. Again, look at verse 42. Everyone kept, uh, excuse me, um, that was for 43, but 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Literally, the prayers. They were praying together. They were praying together. Believing that God can and will do exceeding abundantly beyond all that they ask or think. Knowing, we must come daily to God, knowing that, that he is able to do whatever he wills. Communicating with him, as we saw last week, in a heavenly-minded perspective. By the way, right now what I want us to do is practice that together as a church. We're going to have a little prayer meeting here. Uh, I want us to practice what we have just talked about. Specifically, as it relates to prayer. Uh, one of the united acts here in this passage. Uh, it's a follow-up to last week when we looked at prayer that pleases God in Matthew 6, 5-8. through 8. And we're going to have a time right now of directed small group prayer. Uh, I'll, I'll give you something to pray about. It'll be up on the screen as well. And uh, just a focused way for us to practice a devotion to prayer. So I'm going to ask you right now to just break up into groups of three or four people. Now I realize that's a little uncomfortable. Uh, you were going to get up anyway, right? You're going to leave in a couple minutes anyway. So, but I want to ask you to get into groups of three or four, and we're going to pray together. So do that right now. And uh, if, I want to say, if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, uh, feel free to simply observe. No one's going to force you to pray. I don't want, no one has to pray, okay? Um, but let's do that right now. We're going to pray, first of all, for our worship, for our worship, uh, that it would be pleasing to God. And what we're going to do is just go through, for about four minutes here, just go through one at a time, and then don't leave, don't skip out, because the worship team's going to come back up and sing one more song. But let's pray together. 